Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Good morning. I'm so happy to be up here catching up with Jonah, with you all. Jonah is called a minor prophet. Does anyone know why he's called a minor prophet? Because he's less important? No. It's because the minor prophets are the prophets who had the shorter books in the Bible of narrower breadth. They don't talk about quite as much. So there are 12 of them. They're called the Book of the Twelve, and it starts with Hosea and goes through Malachi. And they come just after the five major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel. So look in your table of contents. You'll see they're all there listed together, the major and then the minor prophets. But Jonah as we began to see last week, is a minor prophet with a major problem. We left him fresh out of the belly of a big fish, and that's because we're dealing with a relentless God. He's going after Jonah and a reluctant prophet. He's a man of God. He's not a bad man. He's a good man. He spends his time in Israel in the 8th century telling people what God is telling him, which at that time mostly consisted of stop sinning or you're going to hell. That was the message. I have to show you something that reminds me a little bit of Jonah. Wait, no. No. Hayes, uh-uh, don't do it. No. Don't do it. No. Don't do it. Don't do it. No. <laughs> no. 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 Don't even think of no. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Don't even think about no. Uh-uh. No. 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 This baby reminds me of a defiant Jonah, and that mama reminds me of a relentless God. The way she keeps giving him more chances to obey her, I just couldn't resist. That mama didn't give up hope that her child would obey, and we see this with God and Jonah. And as we go through just reminding ourselves about what we learned last week about Jonah's journey, I want us to also look at what each of those things tells us about God. Because as much as we want to say this is a book about Jonah, it's named after Jonah, Jonah's all over the place, it's a book about a relentless God and his character. First, God calls Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. This tells us that God is a God who wants to communicate. He does communicate with you and me. He's talking to us. He's communicating in various ways. Are we listening? Second, Jonah runs. We have a map that, that shows you how ridiculous his running was because he was located near, see where Joppa is. He wasn't very far from that port. God wanted him to go to Nineveh which was 500 miles away. Instead, he got in a boat 
at the port of Joppa and started sailing for Tarshish, which was 2,000 miles away. So he really made it hard on himself, not to mention the whole next point, the sea rages. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And as we know, they ended up throwing him overboard because Jonah told them that was the only solution. So we learn from this that God really wants to get our attention. I forgot to say, number two with the map, what does that tell us? When Jonah runs about God, God gives us free will. He asked God to do something, but he did not make him do it. And we see what Jonah did. So number three, the sea rages. God really wants to get our attention. Number four, the fish gulps. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was inside that fish for three days and three nights. That was time out for Jonah. This tells us God gives us ways. He provides ways as he provided this fish. The Bible actually uses the word provided for us to slow down and to consider the things of life, the things of God. What might God be saying to me? Am I running? Am I doing? Am I in his will? And finally, Jonah is released from timeout. And that's where we're today. He was spit out by the whale, the fish, the whatever sea creature it was. The Bible says it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. That creature was probably sick of Jonah. And that's how it felt about him. This tells us about God, that he is a God of second chances. Jonah actively, openly, defiantly disobeyed God, just like that little boy, that little baby, looked his mama in the eye, understood what she said, and defied her. And that's what Jonah did. God did not strike him down, though he could have. He did not make him do the right thing, though he could have, he gave him a second chance after time out. Compare the two starts of chapter 1 and chapter 3. God said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, but Jonah ran away in chapter 1. And in chapter 3, where we start today, God said, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you in Jonah obeyed. The first one he ran, the second one he obeyed. Time out worked. Jonah was able to avoid steps two through five above the second time. He takes the second chance, but he's still salty because the Assyrians still disgust him. The Assyrians were a big nation, the strongest nation around. Nineveh may have been the greatest, largest, most powerful city in the world at that time. But they had been enemies with Israel. Israel had been under their rule a hundred years before that time. And Israel, Jonah didn't know it, but would be under their rule again starting in 722 BC. So we're in between that time. We're in the 8th century BC, but they were um, scary to Jonah because he didn't want them to take over, but they were also repulsively immoral people. Nahum, another minor prophet, spends his entire book writing 
about how bad Nineveh is. The entire book. Here's some of what Nahum says, chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling all over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, sorceries, prostitution, witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord. It's a pretty strong statement by God. I am against you. History reports that Nineveh was so evil that they would skin victims alive. They would build pyramids of human skulls outside a city that they had conquered. And many other things that I don't want to tell you about. You can look it up if you want, but you don't have to. You just know they were bad. He had a huge distaste for what they did and who they were. And we can understand that. He didn't want salvation for these people. He wanted vengeance for these people. Jonah wants to be the one who decides who gets a second chance. It makes sense, anyone can see these are bad people, they need to be stopped in their tracks, they don't deserve to hear the word of God and to be able to turn from their bad ways and save themselves from devastation. We understand that, but we may not understand the depths of the heart of God. Jonah sure didn't. Grace is a word we hear a lot. It means unmerited favor. Mercy is similar. Divine favor, compassion, forgiveness. Either way, God is doing us a favor. It's a second chance for Nineveh, and it's a second chance for Jonah. The difference is Jonah wants to be the one who decides who gets the second chance. I think I should have a second chance, but I don't think they should. They're way worse than me anyway. Maybe we don't know how God sees people either. In the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew, we see a king who has a servant who owes him millions and millions of dollars. And the king calls on the servant and he says to him, you need to pay me back. And the servant says, I can't pay you back, I don't have the money. And so the king says, then I'm going to sell you, I'm gonna sell your family for money, and I'm gonna sell all your possessions and take all that I can get from that. And the servant pleads with him and begs, please, please, please don't do that to me, I beg you, give me mercy. And the king forgives him the entire debt, what would have equaled millions of dollars. Can you imagine? This same servant who had just been forgiven then goes out and he sees another lowly person who owes him a few dollars, maybe three or four dollars. And he says to that person, he takes him by the neck and he says, pay me what you owe me. And the man says, I can't pay you, please, please. Don't hold this against me. And he threw the man in jail for his debt. So word got back around to the king about what this servant had done. And the king said, how could you have failed to give mercy to this person when I forgave you a much larger debt? So he put the first servant into jail as well. How do we know how deep the debt we owe God is. 
and how much has been forgiven to you and me. We can't quite understand it, and there's no way we can compare it to the debt someone else owes to God and what mercy He has shown to them and wants to show to them. Who is Jonah to decide who gets a second chance rather than God? Jonah struggles. He struggles for all these reasons with being obedient, and he struggles with spiritual pride. He thinks, I'm better than they are. They don't deserve the second chance. Both of these traits are harmful not only to the Assyrians, the Ninevites who live in Assyria because they might not hear the message, but they're mostly harmful traits to Jonah himself. God will find a way to get the message to them. One way or the other, God will deal with the Ninevites the way he wants to deal with the Ninevites. But Jonah is destroying his own character by being disobedient to God, by failing to walk into his will and learning what the blessings and the strength of spiritual growth within the will of God feel like in his life. On the outside, from the human perspective, it all seems distasteful and unjust and like something I could get away with not doing. But in reality, it's a missing out on a growth that would change his life. You know, I've told you before the story of the man who lived near a road on a mountain and this huge boulder fell down on the road and it blocked the road. And he heard God say to him, I want you to go and push as hard as you can against that boulder. And the man said, I will, but I don't see why because it's not going to move. I'm nothing compared to that huge boulder. But he went and he did it anyway. And every day for a month, he went and pushed on that huge boulder and never did it move one single inch. And at the end of the month, he said to God, I was right, sorry, you were wrong, it didn't move at all. And God said, no, look at your muscles. His obedience had gained him muscle. Our spiritual obedience to God gains us spiritual muscle. So Jonah decides, I'll do it, but I'm not gonna push very hard. He does the bare minimum. The Bible says Jonah obeyed the word of God. He went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. That meant it would take Jonah three days to go around the city and give the message he was to give. And the Bible says on the first day Jonah gave this message, he said, this is it. This is the whole message. Are you ready? Sit back in your chairs. It's going to take a while. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. In Hebrew, it was five words. That's all he said. No instruction about who God is, why this is happening, how to turn around. The love of God, nothing. Nothing else. Bare minimum. Confirming Jonah's worst fears, God can use the bare minimum. The Ninevites believed God. As simple as those five Hebrew words were that said, change your ways or you're doomed, it's also very simple how the Bible says, the Ninevites believed God. That's unbelievable. How? How'd they go from being so horrible to just like, oh, you said that, I'll believe it. 
how do you and I know when our messages will have effect? We may feel like we have very little to give, and we may not even want to give it, but God knows differently about outcomes. So the Ninevites, to show their belief in God, did a few things. They decided they would fast, and they would put on sackcloth and ashes, which showed how, hum- how humble they were and how sorry they were for sinning. They were pleading for mercy with God. And they said, the king made a declaration saying all these things would happen, plus they would give up their evil and violent ways. Again, unbelievable. The funny thing is, even the animals had to fast and had to put on sackcloth. So. Nobody can ever tell me the book of Jonah is not pretty hilarious through and through. The reason this happened sure wasn't because of Jonah, the reluctant prophet, not because he was so convincing, but he did get to be a little part in a big work that God was doing. It was because God was already at work in Nineveh preparing the way for Jonah to come and plant his tiny five words in that soil. God was preparing the soil. He was fertilizing it. He was getting it ready. They were ready to receive whatever tiny meager offering Jonah had. Jonah was the little missing piece. Maybe you are the little missing piece in someone else's life too. It's called provenient grace on the side of God, the grace that goes before. He invites us to be part of creation with him. What an honor. Even a seed as tiny as a mustard seed grows up into a huge plant. Even our tiny offering to God can mean so much. And that's because God loves to redeem and find lost things. When God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Think about the three stories in Luke 15, three things that God found. In every one of those stories, it talks about his exceeding joy upon finding these lost things. First, it was a sheep. The shepherd had 99 sheep. He had a hundred sheep and one of them strayed. And when he went and found the one that had strayed away from the flock, he brought it home with exceeding joy. He wanted to have a party. Next was the lost coin. And the widow realized she'd lost a coin and she got out her broom and started sweeping and looking everywhere and lifted up the rug and finally found that coin. And when she did, she celebrated. And then there's the lost son, the prodigal son we call him. And when he went away, and he defied his father. He was rude to his father. He rejected his father. He went to try it his own way. And when he finally came back, what did the father do? He ran out to meet him, and he threw a big party. Joy, joy, joy on the part of God. He loves to find lost things. If you're lost, he's looking for you, and he would love to find you. And no matter how much you have rejected him or defied him, 
He will throw a party in your honor and he will run to meet you. You may have heard of Elizabeth Elliot. She's one of my heroes. She wrote 24 books. She had her own radio program for 13 years. She's had her life portrayed as both a play, a movie, and a musical. That's three things, not both. And all this stems from an initial story when she was a missionary with her husband, and then later on when she was obedient among enemies. It's had a profound effect for decades, this story. And the story is that in 1953, Elizabeth married Jim Elliott. She had grown up as a child of missionaries, and he wanted to be a missionary. She was in school at Wheaton College, and she was headed that way. So they decided they would get married. They became missionaries in Ecuador, in South America, and they were working with tribes who didn't even speak their language. And her husband, Jim, wanted to go and reach the unreached tribes. There was one that was particularly difficult, the Alka tribe. It was a fierce, fierce group of primitive people. No one had ever succeeded in meeting anyone in this tribe without being killed. He and some other missionaries discovered the location of this tribe. There were five men all together, and their wives were all a little distance away in safety with their children. And they repeatedly went out in airplanes and dropped gifts and found ways to make contact with these fierce people who were very threatening and violent and didn't speak the language and had never heard the word of God. After friendly contact with three actual people on the ground eventually, they were the next morning speared to death, all five of them. Their bodies were found in the river. After the death of her husband, and I can't imagine that because when I read her book, she has so many, but Through the Gates of Splendor is one that tells the story really well. I read it and I think, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot are where my heart wants to be. Like I want to be straining like they are to do the will of God, to go into unreached reaches. In my spirit, that's what I want. In my life, I'm not there. But I'm so inspired by someone who is doing it, and for him to be killed needlessly along with these other missionaries is such a devastating blow. But Elizabeth Elliot showed such fortitude and obedience and faith that she remains one of my greatest heroes because after the death of her husband and now she's alone with their 10-month daughter, Valerie. Elizabeth stayed in the area and continued to minister to the tribes around there and had the dream of eventually reaching the Alka tribe that killed her husband. She befriended some women who had kind of wandered out from the Alka tribe, and they tried to teach her the language, and she diligently took notes to translate English to Alka and Alka to English so they could communicate, had piles and piles of note cards, and eventually went in to the area to minister among those people. Now, I can't tell you that there was any huge measurable progress because of what she did. 
There wasn't an entire tribe that turned around and said, we believe in God and put on sackcloth and ashes. But I also attempt to tell you that the Ninevites in 622, they didn't believe anymore either. So what does this have to say about what we're doing for God? Elizabeth's note cards that she had made were washed away in a flood. All her work transcribing and translating was washed away. Her husband was killed. So many things about all of that seemed so futile. Yet she remained obedient to what she knew that she knew that she knew that God wanted her to do and be. And here are some of the things that she writes. She tells about her spiritual humility and her unquestioning obedience to God's call. In this way, she says, it is not the level of our spirituality that we can depend on. It is God and nothing less than God, for the work is God's and the call is God's. This quote tells me that her belief that God used even things that seem futile to us was enough for him to work with. He works with the bare minimum. She says, God is the God of human history, and he is at work continuously, mysteriously, accomplishing his eternal purposes in us, through us, and in spite of us. She's willing to trust that God can see so much more than we can see. He will invite us into what he's doing and peel back the curtain for us to see a tiny bit of it, and we have to trust him beyond that. We cannot begin to take in and comprehend more than he gives us. We are too small for it. It would overwhelm us. It would flatten us. So we have to know that God has his eternal purpose. She shows us that the God of second chances understands justice and grace in a way we can never hope to really understand. She says this, I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of human justice. It is the same spirit that taunted, if you are the son of Christ, come down from the cross. God, if you want me to believe you, you need to do it my way. This is what I need to see. This is how I need it to happen. This is who I need to be ministered to. I can see what's just and what's right and what's merciful. How presumptuous of us. What call is God whispering to your soul today? He is always calling. He's calling every one of you. He's talking, communicating with every one of you and with me. What is it that he's saying? Do you need time in the belly of a big fish to think it out, to let it to sink in, to believe it and be willing to go for it no matter what? God is always preparing the way, whatever he's asking of you. He's tilling the soil before you so you can scatter the pitiful seeds that he will grow.
And don't worry. Whatever he's asking of you, it's always best for everyone. It's best for you. It's best for those in your world. It's best for those you minister to. It's always best. There's nothing better. Don't make him put you in time out. Let's pray. God, we come to you with humble hearts, not assuming that we know better than you do, but knowing that we often turn away from you. We ask for your power to look you steady in the eye, to receive your tender words, to receive the love that bolsters us for whatever it is that you have us to do and to be in our day-to-day -day lives, whether it be near or far, common or unusual, scary or familiar. We know that you, Father, can take care of us through all of it if you're asking us to be or do. God, we ask you to close the deal. We don't trust ourselves, but we put ourselves in your hands and we ask you to guide our steps in Jesus' name. And as we go, will you stand? I'd like to send us out with these final words that I love from Elizabeth Elliot. Remember, we have communion in the Life Center and prayer up front, and we'd love to visit with newcomers right out here. Elizabeth says, I will find rest nowhere but in God's will. I will find rest nowhere but in His will. And that is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what He is up to. Go and find rest in His will. Amen. Learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.